0: Good evening. You are listening to the Yearnah podcast. Today is Wednesday, the twenty-first of February, and uh, joining me this evening uh, we have a special guest, Katrina, from the committee. Hi. And our usual, uh, what, what should how, how should we refer to you? A raconteurs. A raconteurs. Okay. Uh, no. So Bronwyn. <laughs>
1: Hello, uh, and Mark. Uh, hey, can I be a tour, can wherever. I be a co-host and not a raconteur? Sounds like I get paid to do after dinner entertainment or something. <laughs> oh, we're, did, we're yeah. just
2: gonna double down on the raccoon tour then.
1: <laughs> or no, is it a raccoon tour? <laughs> anyway. okay, I'm happy to be a raccoonie or something like that. That's fine by me.
0: Yes, All right. How's it? How's everybody's week get going?
2: Well, I don't think our weeks have been as adventurous as yours, Craig. It seems like you, every time we turn around, you're trying to break yourself,
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, so um, so just to put everybody in the picture, I was at the at the gym this morning, having a session with my personal trainer, and uh I was uh, uh doing some kettlebell rows and uh the last one i did uh i felt my back go uh and oops that hurts and uh yes then it was um quite quite bad quite awful pain including um so bad that uh my my uh gym instructor offered to drive me home. Um, but I but I did I didn't. But anyway, we went to uh A and E soon after that and uh and the pain was so bad that the person in front of me in the line said, No, you go first. <laughs> and they put me in a wheelchair and wheeled me in and uh saw a nurse and they gave me some painkillers and and then um, the doctor came to see me, and uh, anyway, I have some some strong drugs, and I have a referral for an MRI. Um, so this is kind of a continuing uh, continuation of my sciatica that I've had for nearly a year, which is uh, which is very annoying, and it flares up sometimes. But today was particularly bad with the gym um, the gym incident. Um, but I've been taking drugs all day, and um, and including tramadol which was uh, interesting. I didn't feel... It uh, f- felt, felt a little bit strange, but um, yeah, not too bad. Minister, so to What you're today, saying so. is
1: you're high as a kite at the moment and anything you say tonight can you can't be held accountable for. It's not really you. It's the drugged up version of you.
0: Well, it could be, but I've actually only taken the one tramadol and that was this morning. So I think its effects have worn off, but we'll see. I am feeling quite a lot better, which is... Uh, which is quite amazing, actually. It's seeming to revert uh, to uh, the mean. I'm hoping that tomorrow I'll, I'll feel quite a lot better. So, anyway, All we'll right. see. But well, I next am looking forward to getting this yourself. MRI and yep. um, getting some idea of what's going on that might be causing the issue.
1: But next time you injure yourself, um, just before you come on the podcast, I want you to be high on tramadol when you're here, please, because it's a little <laughs> bit boring leaving it to wear off.
0: Well, uh, yes, maybe I should have just a little little uh, set of pills that I pop every ten minutes.
2: I, I mean, tramadol doesn't quite work like that.
1: Oh, oh, come on, <laughs> really? Tramadol's,
2: tramadol's the like it's effective. Um, Pain. It does its job, but uh no it, it's it's not the fun kind of opiate all right
1: am i am I gonna have to fork out for cocaine for him or uh, like, I don't want to do heroin, right That's too much, but cocaine, what, I figure to wrong? make Craig more entertaining.
2: What's wrong with acid? What's wrong with eating? <laughs>
1: all right, is- all right, Craig on a trip while being all loved up sounds great for a podcast, <laughs> yeah.
0: I don't think it's going to happen.
1: I don't know, anyway. man.
2: It's you know, I, I think uh, sometime this year it's going to be the Mormon temple opening up in Auckland, so we can easily just do a little day trip.
1: Right, a trip. Sure. Oh, I I like the pun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I guess that would be entertaining. Would Would we have to uh, put out the the popcorn and uh, maybe go and see a movie as well?
1: We could go and see a movie. Lovely segue. Um, So in this week's newsletter, I wrote a movie review. I, I think the first one I've ever written. And I figured, given that I'd suffered through a... I wouldn't say a bad movie, because I'm a connoisseur of bad movies, but a mediocre, very mediocre movie. Because I suffered through it, you're all going to have to suffer through me recounting what I watched. And it's it's of sceptical interest because the movie is called The Mandela Effect, and it is about The Mandela Effect. And for anybody that doesn't know what The Mandela Effect is, I think it's fascinating. To me, this kind of conspiracy theory pseudo-scientific idea. I I think it's very telling about the types of people that we deal with as skeptics. Um, So the basic idea is that for a lot of people, they remember parts of their childhood that later on in life they might look back on and find that that thing that they remember from years ago is actually different to how they remember. So there are a couple of famous examples that came up when people started talking about this online like a little bit less than 10 years ago. Um, so they were talking about things like a series of American books called the Berenstain Bears and a bunch of people remember it being the Berenstein bears, E I N, and not the Stain bears, A I N. That would
0: be me. I remember reading them to my kids, and I, from whoa. memory, I would have thought it was the Berenstein bears, but I probably be just, that sounds like a more plausible name to me.
1: Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And the yeah. the one the effect is named after, the Mandela effect, is a bunch of people who found each other on Reddit who all seem to remember that Nelson Mandela died while in prison. And we're quite surprised to hear that not only was he released, but he became the president of South Africa. And this was news to them, like, well, he he died. How the heck did he end up becoming president? Now, for us normal people, the way we deal with this, it, we'd go must have misremembered. Obviously, I just made an assumption back then and it stuck in my mind, but it was different to what I thought. For a conspiracy theorist, for somebody who, A, doesn't appear to have any requirement for evidence to believe something, and B, has a level of arrogance that is galling, the more logical solution for them is that they must have slipped into a parallel universe where these things are slightly different. And that this is what Mandela Effect believers are running with, the idea that, no, they didn't misremember Looney Tunes. The spelling of tunes is T-U-N-E-S and not T-O-O-N-S. It was spelt T-O-O-N-S in the universe they used to live in, but at some point they slipped into another universe where it's spelt T-U-N-E-S. And, and so their memory is fine. They're not fallible. They can be trusted with everything. Um, and it's just a different universe that they found themselves in, where luckily everything else is the same. It's not like they've got to a universe where plants are the dominant species and humans are hunted or anything like that. It happens to be an almost identical universe that somehow they've ended up in. Um, and so, as I said, the arrogance of this, it just it just bewilders me that maybe that's just like a A lack of understanding of science, like a fundamental lack of understanding of what's possible and how things work. But yeah, just just the sheer goal of believing, no, no, I couldn't possibly have got this wrong. And so people have amassed a whole bunch of examples, including a New Zealand one, which is really nice. So the New Zealand, uh, the main New Zealand Mandela effect idea is that New Zealand in this other universe that a bunch of people inhabited was off the northeast coast of Australia and not the southeast coast. People remember us being a lot further north, and when they see a map and see where we actually are, they're like, oh, I'm in a different universe now. <laughs> um, I, I,
2: I will have to say, though, there's a lot of problems in terms of popular maps and where New Zealand is or if New Zealand's even oh, yeah. on it. Like, so I, think I, I would say like, that's probably more reasonable of why people have, a, have the wrong idea about it.
1: Yeah, sometimes people want to fit New Zealand on even if they're cutting off the poles so we can get moved more often. And, it, you know, there's a whole meme about it online. It's even, I think there's a website and it's even on some New Zealand government websites. They have maps of the world that don't just don't feature New Zealand. New Zealand's totally cut off the map. <laughs> um, so yes, you're right. That's somewhat understandable. And if you want to go and have a look online for examples of the Mandela effect and the things people believe, there are hundreds of them. I mean, just one watching this movie about the mandela effect um there were a few that i hadn't learned about before you know there was one scene that i talk about where the guy who's the lead he's playing donkey kong and i'm like Is that a subtle reference to a Mandela effect thing? And I found a video on YouTube that only had a few hundred views, which was all about the pattern on the side of the barrels that get thrown down for Mario to jump over in Donkey Kong. And this this guy made this video, a two-minute YouTube video, saying, I don't remember being patterns on the side of the barrels, but now I'm an adult and playing it. Here they are. I think I've gone to another universe. Um, And so this scene, it's like, is that referencing this video that a couple of hundred people have seen? I mean, to me, it it looks much more likely than, you know, jumping universes that... When this guy played this as a kid, he will have played it on a CRT monitor, either in an arcade machine or at home. It would have been bad resolution and blurry. And later on, when he comes to play it in some kind of emulator on a full HD screen, the pattern's gonna be a lot more obvious than when it was as a kid. That that's just my thought on it. But yeah, so I the movie basically it takes a little twist on the Mandela effect. So the, the dominant theory is the universe's thing. The movie comes up with this idea that maybe we're living in a simulation. Um, And so the idea is that these little glitches, I guess it's a little bit like The Matrix. So in The Matrix, you had the uh, deja vu was a glitch that told you that you were just in a simulation. In this one, one of the glitches that we see is the Mandela effect. It's a misremembering. And, And there are. So many things wrong with this. I mean, not least of all, I can't think of a type of computer where a corruption could cause a persistent change in various different parts of storage all simultaneously. Um, It doesn't seem to make much sense to me. Um, The idea of a quantum computer running the universe and being able to hack it by using a quantum computer, which is what this guy does, it made absolutely no sense. And then I really choked on the idea when he was talking with this professor. So the guy who's in the movie, he loses his daughter... It's all very sad, but then he starts to notice these Mandela effect things, and he thinks, what is this? He finds a professor who he talks to, and they talk about maybe a way of getting his child back. But there's this one conversation with a professor where he brings up this theory he's got about how the universe is a simulation. And they talk about how, you know, if there's nobody in a building, you don't need to draw the inside. You just need to draw the outside and the shadows and this this. Lead character, our protagonist, who turns out is a programmer, he says, Oh, yes, that's known in computer game programming as procedural generation. Totally wrong. Like this, Mm -hmm. I really choked on this bit because that's culling. Culling is when you figure out what people can see and you only render, you only generate those bits that you need to generate and render for the things that you're looking at. So the backs of walls and buildings aren't needed. Anything outside of the viewport isn't needed. There's a whole bunch of clever maths that, computer scientists use to figure out what needs rendering and what doesn't need rendering. So it is clever technology, but procedural generation is something different. That's where you try and come out with a set of functions that could describe a world um, so that instead of having to actually draw the map, because in most games, the map that you play in on a computer game is hand-designed by a bunch of people. Every rock, every tree is placed by hand. Um, Sometimes well, sometimes badly, but it's all human done. But in procedural generation, you write a set of computer functions that describe the kinds of terrain that you will get. So Minecraft is a really good example. I put a video in the newsletter where a guy was explaining when they wanted to add caves, how they had to revisit a lot of the programming. But it's programming like, you know, how often do you get big hills and how big are those hills? And, you know, at at a very local level, what kind of disturbances will you get on ground? How often do you get trees? How much do trees clump? Um, How do you end up with indented areas that could become lakes and things like this? So procedural generation, you can run these functions with a set of random numbers. You kind of give it a certain amount of freedom with the random numbers where it can generate a world. And Minecraft does this really well, where Minecraft has a single number, which is called a seed. And that seed is a large integer where that is used to generate all the pseudo random numbers. So that one single number, will totally dictate how an entire massive Minecraft world will use. So anybody else that types in the same number as you will get exactly the same world because it's being run through the same function. So that was was my aside that I went into, my little rant in the newsletter, that it was not procedural generation. But so the idea of the movie, when we get down to how is this guy going to get his daughter back, is that if he can just run... Functions inside of functions, I guess, some kind of recursion on this 512 qubit computer that this professor has at a university. Maybe he can overload the system so much that he can get it to crash. And maybe, and this bit is explained, he's just going to take on faith. Maybe the crashing will bring his daughter back. And sure enough, that's exactly what it does. When eventually he manages to run his program in a way that crashes the world, it takes him right back to about 30 minutes before his daughter drowned, just in time that he can make a small change that will save his daughter. It's a little bit cheesy at the end, um, but there were some nice touches, like the the hat nods to a whole bunch of Mandela Effect ideas, like... When the girl drowns, the reason she drowns is because her Curious George toy monkey gets swept away into the water and she tries to go after it because it's her favourite toy. And in the movie, the Curious George has a tail. And this is another Mandela effect thing, is the idea that turns out in reality, in our reality at least, Curious George does not have a tail. Um, But a lot of people remember Curious George, the cartoon monkey with a tail. And so this is another universe slipping thing. And so making that almost an instrumental plot point, I thought, was kind of nice. And, yeah, some of the ways in which they added those Mandela effect points, like just For the insiders that are well into the Mandela Effect, I imagine they must have loved this movie. Just seeing all these little things they believe being just subtly mentioned, I I can imagine (laughs) that was very validating for them. But Mm. in the end, it wasn't a great movie. It was all right. It was surprisingly better than I thought it was going to be. But it was just a cheap movie, basically.
0: Well, Rotten Tomatoes rates it at 20%. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not got a great Rotten Tomatoes That's based on five reviewers Of which four didn't like it and one did
0: Right That's only five I,
1: reviewers even watched it
0: The thing I don't understand about the Mandela Effect Is how come the your human brain's memories Is immune to uh, switching timelines Because surely if you went into a different universe Your brain would have memories from that universe Yeah, That's what I was going to
3: say, there's a legitimate many worlds kind of theory, which it says every time there's a quantum event where you could measure something two different ways, like the cat's alive, the cat's dead, you know, Schrodinger's Mm. cat, or is it a particle or wave, the universe will then split into two. So you end up on one of those timelines, but you don't get to sort of fall over into the other timeline at all, and you don't get
1: to go back. Because um, that other timeline has got another copy of you in it that's doing its thing. Um, yeah, it's like if you jumped you into the other timeline, there'd be you don't remember two two the other you.
3: one because you're not in it. Like it's not a thing. But
2: maybe I want to swap thing. to the
0: timeline where I didn't injure myself this morning. <laughs> but but <laughs> why
2: are you guys excluding a timeline where there is two of you?
3: <laughs>
0: Already <laughs> two of that, you.
2: Yeah. Why isn't that a possibility in the multiverse that there are there are versions of the universe where there are
3: two or more of you? Yes, the, well there'd be a lot one of us. universes if it splits every time there's a quantum, a quantum event difference. yeah. I mean yeah. you're just no, looking-
1: it it would be a pyramid scheme of quantum universes that, that got very big very quickly. Uh yeah, there have been ideas about how maybe these universes are culled so there's a manageable number. Um, but it's all very theoretical and hypothetical at the moment.
3: The seed theory, I've actually just finished reading a sci-fi book where they went through some chaos field where all the universes were splitting off it and bubbling off it, and they found a seed. So I'm just wondering how many of these people reading the popular sci-fi science oh. fiction and pulling some of these things out of that, because it just sounds almost exactly what they're talking about there.
1: Yeah. And Mm -hmm. Anathem is another good book that that has many worlds. But no, that that whole thing of people referencing public um, or popular culture, you see it so often. Like when I went to see David Icke speaking, like a lot of his theories are just based on movies he's seen. So when he's trying to describe something, he'll describe it for five or ten minutes. And then you'll get the gotcha moment where it's like, it's just like. And so when I saw him, it was like, oh, yeah, well, the world is just like the Hunger Games. And then he was trying to explain the higher dimensions and the archons. And then suddenly, oh, yes, well, you have to understand the world is just like the Matrix. And it's like, does this dude just sit there and watch movies and let his mind run riot? Because that's what it sounds like. Probably.
2: my, my sort of question about the Mandela Effect is, what is the balance of a lot of these Mandela effects being based on objects or movies or books in popular culture versus say, as you say, Nelson Mandela, people just not or misremembering history? Because I would say with something like popular media, there actually are, there can be media like regional variations and depending on how a show is released. Largely, we're going to see, you know, a lot of people ha- probably are used to a very different version of movies in China or whether it's heavy censorship.
0: Yeah. Right. I, do I, they have a different plot? Do they actually have different plot details?
2: Yeah, I think um they do. Or like, no, you know, I, the, or, or I think you know, like with Iron Man, you know, there was a bit more of an evidence of a particular Chinese character who was a scientist. Like one of the yeah, um, interesting. one of the um one of those Marvel yeah. films. If not Iron Man, then certainly the
1: I would hope that even the Mandela effect supporters are doing enough homework to figure out when people have watched different versions of a movie rather than just claiming it's another schism of the universe. <laughs> um, but probably not. I mean, probably that, you know, they're out there actively fishing for misremembered things.
0: Hmm. I guess the the interesting thing about this idea of quantum events splitting the universe and so on is that in our reality, we live in one universe and all the decisions that we make and the things that happen all the time obviously cause this splitting to happen, but surely only the universe that we're actually in needs to um, be maintained. All the other ones have just disappeared and their and quantum wave uh, collapsing, surely.
1: I mean, this is a conversation that I'm sure could take multiple hours, and and for lots of podcast episodes, if you want to do that much editing. But yeah, it, it no, feels like we're about no, to get onto free now. will and the illusion of free will, and and it all gets very weird very mm. quickly.
0: Sure, yes. All right. Well, so um, I wrote in the newsletter this week about a, a topic that I had a misunderstanding of. Uh, And that was uh, what's called crank crank or quack magnetism. And I was listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they had a segment about how wellness influencers were getting into climate change denial. And that was kind of surprising. And they mentioned the concept of crank magnetism. And the idea of crank magnetism is that people who are into one pseudoscience it tends to they sort of attract other pseudosciences like a magnet and we see examples of this i just looked up our friend jeanette wilson the alleged psychic uh, and and whenever i've seen her posts on facebook she just believes the most bizarrest of things, and I don't think there's a conspiracy theory that that she hasn't actually subscribed to, so I guess she's a she's a good example of a of a crank magnet um in that she's attracting all this stuff, and then another one would be Liz Gunn, so she has all these weird theories and subscribes to a whole bunch of different things.
1: Sorry, so I was going to say, I, I picked up Jeanette Wilson's autobiography the other week from a charity shop. So if you want to actually read the crazy stuff she's into, th- <laughs> I think a lot of it's in that book.
0: Hmm. How much did you pay?
1: I think it was about 30 cents. <laughs> you paid too much, Mark. I did. I did overpay. Yes. Except, Except that it was
0: a charity shop and so you probably should have given them 10 bucks.
1: Yeah, no, well, no, not for the books that I picked up. Pete Evans, Paleo Diet, and God knows what else. I was not going to overpay for those. Right, right.
0: Uh, anyway, I originally thought that crank magnetism has something to do with magnets.
1: I totally so understand I this because of... I I don't think I've ever heard the phrase, but if I had heard it, I probably would have jumped to the same assumption you had, which is that, yeah, it's about magnetic devices curing people and, and all that nonsense. Yeah,
0: yeah so nothing to do with that. So I guess I just took it too literally um as I am prone to do many times. Um but I think there's an interesting aspect to this in that the the idea of prank magnetism being promoted by say wellness influencers isn't necessarily just that they are people who don't think critically and their their brains are so wide open that, or well, their minds are so wide open, that their brains fall out and they'll accept anything. I think there's perhaps a, a cynical aspect to this in that picking up on all of these um, sort of weird topics tends to generate um, clicks and outrage. And so what they're doing is they're optimizing their um, beliefs or that, what they're promoting to uh, maximise revenue. Um, and yep. and I guess Alex Jones would be another example of this. Um, he has all these weird um, beliefs, and he's just doing it. He claims he's playing a character. That's what he claimed in his court case for uh, what was a child custody. Um, mm-hmm. He claimed that he didn't actually really believe these things. He's just playing a, playing a character. He was a... Uh, doing that just for the money.
1: (laughs) But I I guess there's that indirect revenue of, of getting listeners, but there's also probably a more direct revenue of the more you are open, the more weird advertisers will be comfortable advertising with you. Um, and you know you listen to some of these crank podcasts and the adverts are infuriating the, the kind of nonsense they're selling people like even Bronwyn, um, I told you the other day I started listening finally to that sex.life podcast our local podcast about our local sex cult don't and they're advertising, they're advertising they're advertising Hundi. they're advertising this magical pill that will do something magical that will make you feel better after a night of heavy drinking I looked it up online total nonsense but they don't Care because you know they're into woo and nonsense. Yeah. yeah,
2: I've seen I've seen them sell sold at like the counters of some liquor stores, like the more local uh, mom and pop liquor stores. So strange.
0: So I guess the, the other local example of this would be um, Voices for Freedom and their Reality Check Radio. And I just had a look at their their emails that they sent me recently, and if you look at the topics they're talking about, a reality check radio. Things like anti fluoride, um, anything that's anti woke. Um, of course, all their COVID conspiracies, and they're into climate change denial um, and also all sorts of conspiracy theories about uh, globalist agendas and the UN and the World Economic Forum and so on. And I think that's probably just a good example because they've got this uh, media outlet. That needs to keep generating uh, revenue by getting people to listen and having their advertisers. And so they'll just latch onto anything that's controversial so that they can um, continue making money.
1: I've got another example in front of me here Freedom Village, the latest email I've received from them. This is Billy TK and uh, is it Mariama? I think, but their email, their latest email is about weather control, truth and tyranny. And in there, we also have adverts for a cell detox and buying a plot on a private paradise island away from government control and oh, men's health massage sessions. No, that sounds a little (laughs) bit different. Um, Yeah. And some weird real estate agent who's obviously very friendly with conspiracy theorists, but it's... The email never ceases to surprise me with the weirdness that it advertises and the new conspiracy theories that they seem to have picked up.
0: <laughs> and of course, I mean, as always, you can never tell whether these people just actually really do believe these things or whether they're just doing it cynically in order to gain an audience and uh, and make money out of it. You can never can tell, really, can you?
1: Yeah, because the ones that are lying will will be just as convincing normally as the ones that aren't and truly believe it in telling you that, no, they honestly do think these things work. It, yeah, it, like they're never going to admit it, right? It's just too embarrassing to admit that you don't believe it and you're just cynically making money off of people. Indeed. Donald Trump and election denial. I
3: think that they're the sceptics and the critical thinkers <laughs> and we're the sheep. They just flip that one over on you and you're just like, yeah. Can't really continue that conversation, can you?
0: Just... Anyway, so um, apparently the Therapeutic Products Act is dead. Yes, yes.
3: It's um, written into the coalition agreement to repeal it. So it's as good as dead. Um was due to be come into effect September 2026. It's been, we'll be within our existing legislation it's part of a coalition deal it's they're not going to change their mind on that I guess we came in from the natural therapies angle but it also did bring in some uh, regulation covering medical devices and it also included sort of phone connected health apps and things like that that took measurements so I guess you know the concern goes a little bit wider than just uh, the area that we focused on, which is sort of unregulated area, and it was sort of going into devices. So that sort of leaves us with the current um, situation. Um, and the aim of the Act was really just to make the environment safer for people. So what we wanted now submission is we wanted things to be uh, safe and also actually work if people said that something was going to do something or we wanted to see evidence that that was the case and so that people weren't wasting their money as well as not being harmed
1: and that um, was a that was an obvious change we saw an obvious disconnect we saw wasn't it where I think for both medicines and medical devices, it was safety and efficacy, and when yeah. it came to natural health products, it was just the word safety and efficacy was nowhere to be seen.
3: Yeah, and and I we did make that submission on that, but it didn't really have any effect. So you know there, there were more tools in this than there are under the current uh, legislation that we're under, but um, sort of come off the table. It did carve out a a little bit. Uh, there was a surprise in there in the final version of the legislation, so we didn't get an opportunity to make a submission on the whole Act, um, because they brought in a new whole section uh, that carved out ronga, which was sort of, uh, I guess, referred to in the earlier version of the Act as sort of traditional therapies, but it didn't really get into it. Um, but it got its whole section in that final version of the Act. And I know you, have uh, Mark, have had some queries from members and things around that.
1: Yeah, yeah, we did. So we had one member who who chose not to renew their membership, um, and just sent us a short note based on that. Um, they said your submission on the Therapeutic Products Act said we were extremely concerned about the inclusion of traditional use, which we did say. I I believe that was part of our submission. Um, but then this member went on to say, but then excluded wronger practitioners. This is unbelievably hypocritical. So this person basically has not renewed their membership because they're upset that we didn't push back against the inclusion of Rongowa. But as you've just said, Katrina, at the point that we were putting in our submission, the version of the bill that was available to us was a version that was pre the inclusion of Rongowa. So it wasn't mentioned even once in the bill at the time. So I get this guy is passionate and they Seem to be very passionate about wrongware and not having wrongware anywhere, which I can totally understand. I, I guess at least as far as inside our healthcare bills and acts are concerned, it probably shouldn't be there, and unless it's because it's being heavily regulated so that people can't say stuff without good evidence. But, yeah, I think that just that fundamental misunderstanding that because they read the act and saw in the act that became law, that by that point it had wrong over in, they thought that we basically just decided to ignore it, where... I mean, I think we still have an understanding that we would have to be careful when mentioning it, but I think we definitely would have mentioned it if it was in there at the time, but it just wasn't in the version of the bill that we were commenting on. So I I think we had a very good reason to not mention it.
3: It does. It's a bit of a hole in the constitutive process, really, isn't it? If you can put a giant thing in in the final part that sort of changes things and not reconcile on that, to me, that that's kind of putting speed over um the consultation process. I mean, I guess if it's minor tweaks or so you're pretty much doing what you said you're gonna do and yeah. um you know fine. But um if you're going to look at major changes to the draft legislation, you know, probably would be best practice to actually run a bit of a recon consult on that with the public, but oh well. Um mm. apparently they don't have to. Um
0: well, well, at least we got to comment on it, unlike a tonne of legislation that's being pushed through at the moment that uh, is done under the urgency of the first hundred days of the new government.
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Dear. Well, speaking of the new government, it turns out that um, when I looked into this, just to make sure that I was correct that Rongowa wasn't mentioned in the version of the bill that we submitted on. Um, I found that in the subsequent version where wrongowa was added that normally with these bills when changes are made you get a whole bunch of commentary at the beginning that explains the reasoning why. And it looks like a major driving force behind this change was the National Party. The National Party basically argued loudly that Rongowa should not be regulated at all. But beyond that they said we believe that natural health products full stop should not be regulated. And I really choked on that. I mean, you know, the national party's got like at least one doctor, right? One GP as as a as a member. Like how the hell are they thinking that we shouldn't be regulating natural health products? It, it just dangerous mm, strange it yes does... well let's not get I mean, too I mean,
0: deep I, into the political
3: I, so. I
2: mean craig given that you are the parent of a medical doctor would you say that c still get degrees in the medical school
0: indeed they do I mean, but yeah i'm I, not, I, I not think...
2: saying that shane ritty has had, had was a you know had a, had a c degree or a low gpa but you know because someone's a doctor or a medical doctor you know, has a PhD, it doesn't mean that they're great humanitarians. It doesn't mean that they are really deep thinkers. You know, they may have, you know, they have a skill set, admittedly, but.
1: I get the feeling it's probably more the case that he was overruled in this from everything I've heard of people I've talked to that have met with Shane and had a chat with him. He does seem pretty much evidence-based. So I imagine he probably just wasn't even a voice in this decision. He was on the sidelines somewhere, is more likely. Hmm. To me, it just
0: seems like they're just repealing everything that the previous government did.
1: We have talked about this, like skeptics in the pub, Um, James, who we've had on the podcast once, he did mention that, you know, in the short time they had, because it took long enough to um, to manage to get a government together, they only had a short time before Christmas about all you can do in a short gap of time is repeal. You're not going to be able to make new bills in that time. So kind of the getting rid of the stuff you don't like is the easy things. I mean, to a lot of people, it doesn't look good, but those were kind of the easy steps that they could take in a short time.
3: Some of them were signalled a long time ago, and those parties were kind of aligned on some of the stuff they repealed, like I think the fair pay agreements. Nobody was surprised by that, mm. Um but the therapeutic products act one actually did surprise me a bit when it popped up. I didn't understand the train of thought that went there. Um, yeah. yeah,
1: to get as far so, as royal assent and then be repealed seems a little bit too mm, late. Yeah,
0: I mean the the question then is: now we're left with the Medicines Act of 1981 and whatever the regulations were that came after it. What are they going to do about this? Surely it still needs updating. Um, So are they actually going to come up with something that is supposedly better, or is it just they're going to just leave things as they were?
3: Well, this has happened before. So there's there's the What, history repeats? (laughs) In 2011, there were bills trying to replace the Medicines Act, Mm, which the 1981 Act, and they were stopped. So this keeps happening. People keep going, we need to replace it, but don't seem to be able to agree on what will replace it. And I think the result is really for something that's really dated. It's not covering the current technology in terms of devices, but it's also not giving um, the safety protections that I think you perhaps need. Um, Because you think back 1981, there there weren't even iPhones then. Like, advertising things on the internet wasn't thing Um, you know so if you've got a dodgy product there are really low cost ways of promoting that now and putting up a flash website that probably costs you nothing and making it look really convincing and getting it to and selling it to people whereas back in 1981 you were probably going to have to put postage stamps on envelopes and things and that sort of stuff so I, I do think that we haven't really got the tools to deal with the wave of potential products out there we're so stuck with, you know, if it's a dietary supplement, which means they're claiming some sort of therapeutic purpose then we've got the medicines Act 1981 if it's not claiming a therapeutic purpose then it, probably a food and you've got a food act um dietary supplements are sort of under the food act but the the two different things and then you can sort of go for you know they breaching some sort of advertising standard by making false claims or you've got the fair trading act but that's a real long bow to string and the food rules are pretty narrow so You know, it's things like if they're unregistered business or there's unhygienical, incorrect food handling, storage or transport or preparation. So that's more aimed at someone's bought off chicken because it hasn't been stored correctly. It's not going to help you with a homeopathic treatment. And you can report allergic reactions. So I guess if someone actually makes something with an ingredient in it and that causes an allergic reaction or something that's been added to it causes reaction. But at that point, someone's been harmed and that's pretty serious and then what happens once it's reported anything happened the advertising standards they've they've got a special standard for um therapeutic and health advertising there's a a code that people have to abide by and that's probably the lowest hanging fruit and i think that's probably what's been mainly used in terms of skeptical activism as People are just making misleading claims. Just, it's deceptive. Yeah. Um, I, I, Mark, I think, though,
0: that the ASA is probably getting less and less relevant as as more websites proliferate, and essentially many websites could just thumb their nose at an ASA ruling. Mm. There's very little they can do.
2: I mean, Mark, you and Daniel do quite a bit of this as part of the um, healthcare advocacy in the pub. So, I mean, what's been your sort of experience dealing with the asa what? (laughs)
1: Um, They're an interesting bunch. Hot and cold. Sometimes they've made good rulings. They've been sympathetic. Other times they come out with some really, really dumb ideas. Like there are parts of the new um, therapeutic advertising code that are only in there because of, I think, myself and Daniel and a few other activists. Basically, there are stringent requirements um, that you need to send stuff in as supporting evidence you don't need for any other codes. And I think they were just trying to put barriers in our way to stop us. I I don't mean to be boastful about this, but we were basically the only ones really using um, that code in anger. And there were a whole raft of changes that happened after we started using it basically every other week. Um, But yeah, you know, there've been some really Silly things that they've done, like we got them in a bit of trouble with an acupuncturist when we reported a a local Wellington acupuncturist and the acupuncturist got lawyers involved and the ASA got a little bit scared. And now they've got a guideline that basically says we consider that a therapeutic product works if any Insurance company will sell you insurance that covers it. They see insurance companies covering something like homeopathy as evidence of efficacy. And it's like, in what possible universe, I guess this is back to the Mandela effect, but in what possible universe is an insurance company paying out for something evidence that it works? Like, that's just, that's a ridiculous leap to make. Um, And then the other one is that they say, well, if ACC pays out for it, we consider that must be efficacious. I've talked to the ASA. I've had a meeting with the ASA where the ASA has said to me to my face, the fact that we pay for these therapies does not mean we are claiming that they work. The ASA is very, very honest about this. They pay for therapies that they think are able to get people back to work, that are able to make people feel like they can become productive members of society again. They don't do it based on efficacy. Did you just say the ASA pay for things? Sorry, not the ASA, Sorry, the ACC. The ACC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the ASA doesn't. But the, the ASA, they get paid by, um, so they're kind of an industry self-regulation group. Greg, you were talking about how they become less relevant. And the issue here is because it's industry self-regulation, historically when all the advertising went through print media and television media and radio the fact that these groups were policing it, they were happy to put money in to run the ASA in order that they could do the regulation and not the government. They were happy with that. But now most of what they're policing is not even the advertising they're making money from. They end up policing, as you say, tiny websites and individuals who don't have to go through television filtering, who don't have to pay money to get it in the newspaper. So the newspapers are paying money to run a group that isn't even regulating their adverts, really. I mean, they've mainly got their act together. The newspapers by now, the people that run their advertising columns, they know what a bad advert is and they immediately say no. So, yeah, so it, it's kind of weird that, you know, like, I think the ASA Now is covering influencers. Um, a few years ago, they they basically said, we, we now cover... Um, social media influencers and in anything they say. So they've really expanded their remit as, as much as they can, but no social media influencer is paying in to help run the ASA. So, yeah, I wonder whether it does have a limited shelf life now.
0: Mm. Yes, there should be some sort of a tax on social media influencers that refunds the
1: ASA. <laughs> like a 95% tax, is that where you yeah, think you going? that sounds perfect.
3: <laughs> it just feels like the wrong door, like you... Got a product that could cause harm or ripping people off and you're going after the advertising, not the product, you know, it just, Mm -hmm. and it feels like, you know, it would be better placed having a real strong medical panel looking at these going, is this something that could harm the public? Um, and instead it's going on in the advertising angle. And I just wonder whether, you know, they're really resourced up to deal with a raft of, medical staff. It just feels like square peg round hole kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. It it sits in a weird place because it's self-regulation as well. They have no teeth. The ASA can tell someone, stop it. They have no legal ability to make someone stop it. Um, they just try and look scary enough that people don't realize that they're toothless and hope that people will just behave themselves. But yeah, mm. more and more recently, we've seen people that don't they They yes. realize that they could ignore the ASA with no implications
0: and uh, and I guess in 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 the past, they've sort of relied on shaming sort of large companies that they'll publish yes. this thing to say that well, their ad was bad, but that's of no consequence to a tiny little website that doesn't really care.
1: Yeah, yeah, so press releases go out. I mean again, they they don't do as much as they could do, like the British ASA has some really nice stuff. like they say we have a bunch of members. Until you clean up your act and follow our instructions, all of our members will deny you our service. And those members include Royal Mail. So if you're any company that's mailing stuff out to your customers, the ASA has the ability to deny you the ability to reach your customers until you change your advert. Our ASA over here... Probably has the ability to do that, but they've decided not to. They don't do anything. They don't have a, a name and shame webpage where they mention these people. They don't use any other method of trying to strong-arm them. They basically just say, you've got to make this change, and then they walk away. They don't do any checking. They, they don't they don't follow up. They just leave it.
3: Yeah, and there were, there were significant financial penalties in the proposed act for companies mm. and individuals. It had some real teeth it also went a bit further than social influences and it was kind of talking about anybody um you know saying stuff so someone's on Facebook and they're quite blatantly promoting their MLM that is selling some weird shake that is supposed to have health benefits and they're talking about all these health benefits they're getting and how you should buy it even if they're not an influencer as such it could capture that kind of activity, and how far the enforcement of that went was probably making some people nervous, but um, but it was just a way of just putting people on notice that, you know, if you go and do this stuff, there's potentially consequences if you've got the information really wrong. Someone could use that product and um, find themselves in harm's way or not doing what they should be doing for their health and You shouldn't do that.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it it wasn't a perfect piece of legislation, and certainly it seemed to go slightly backwards after the uh, select committee process, but it was better than the Medicines Act. It was broader, and it it was a step forwards, right?
3: So Um, I don't know if they're going to come up with a replacement in this term. It seems like it would be quite a difficult thing to do with three parties in government, but um, maybe they weren't go there and i'm not sort of sensing anybody making noises about that
0: but um no there's there's got to be the political will to actually do something about it and mm. i'm and i'm sure that that the therapeutic products bill was um in in design and everything for a long time before it actually saw the light of day
1: i think yeah it was a massive effort i mean reading just how thorough it was they obviously put like tens of thousands of hours into it I guess
3: the thing that worries me is I don't really understand the reason why it was shelved. And that will be, you know, that, that dictates whether there would be replacement legislation with those parties involved, really. But it just seemed to randomly be, oh, and by the way, we're repealing this act. And I'm like, where did that come from? I don't <laughs> understand
0: this. <laughs> Because it's perceived to be anti woke, I guess, and their voters didn't like things that were woke, and so uh, they didn't have anything that's woke, maybe mm-hmm. it's just
3: lack of it's regulation. Therefore, it must be bad. I don't know. This the train of thought of you know people need to be at liberty to do whatever they like, and yeah. the market will make everything okay. I don't know, mm,
1: but I, I think yep. without being conspiratorial. The natural health product industry is not small and it's not mum and pop, it's Mainly large companies who are able to effectively lobby, and certainly when Bronwyn and I gave our oral submission to the Select Committee, the, the couple of people we talked to and the people we saw who were in about the same time as us, most of them were from industry groups or individual companies who were making money from natural health products. Like the rest of the industry, you know, the real medicines industry, they they had some niggling thoughts and and some bits and bobs. They weren't really there. The people we saw, it was all. All natural health. It was all natural health companies that were there to try and protect their bottom line, and so I, I think that's probably a good part of the reason why we've seen it go. Is because, as the National Party said in their part of the commentary, um, they wanted all natural health products to be unregulated. And this is one way of doing it. It's a little bit of taking a sledgehammer to it, but um, it certainly made sure that, you know, there's no more regulation than there already is of natural health products.
0: Uh, yes. Well, I don't know what we're going to do about it. <laughs> Complain.
1: <laughs> Just keep complaining. Yes. It is a
0: bit demoralising. Um, Bronwyn, you, perhaps you can cheer us up with a story about this Christchurch <laughs> no there is no
2: there is no joy there is no cheer (laughs) moreover it's like oh more of the same um in the sense that you know we have a pretty we actually kind of have a semi-toothless healthcare practitioners assurance act you know you have people it's so easy for people to claim that they're counselors without any counseling Mm -hmm. training
0: yeah therefore you know people can charge
2: yeah people can charge hundreds of dollars and you know no supervision or they can create their own fringe Associations and have people buy in for uh, annual practicing certificates, and there's no regulation. So you know, I, in a way, I can see how it would have been an interesting domino to see tumble had the Therapeutic Products Act gone through. The implications of okay, let's hey, let's take a look at that healthcare healthcare practitioners act and uh, take a look there because that's where my story is. Because um, if no one's familiar, I'm going to be talking about Yasmeen Clark and the Pasha Center in Christchurch sort of the last part of my multi-part series, even though it is a two-parter in and of itself, um, about channelers in New Zealand, you know, these white people who are channeling millennia-old Asians <laughs> from Sumatra or um, Ira- Persia or Iraq. And funny enough, I did get an email from our lovely colleagues at the Australian Skeptics, Um, the editor, Tim, their Tim. and He was asking, so Bronwyn, has anyone tried to call out Yasmin by speaking to her in Farsi during a channeling Ooh. session? <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? If anyone's ha- if anyone has, it hasn't been recorded. Um they were quickly so,
1: removed from the room presumably.
2: Yeah. But um I guess I'm jumping ahead of myself. Um so Yasmin, not a lot of information out about her. You know, she has spoken about herself there was a stuff or a herald article by vicki anderson a couple years ago about her about um yasmin clark so as best i can tell she was possibly born in new zealand she was certainly living in the south island around mosgiel dunedin area from a pretty young age and she claims to have been able to see ghosts <laughs> But her channeling of spirits didn't really start until about 19, maybe about the mid-1980s. She got to meet her particular spirit, this Persian merchant named uh, Pasha. Well, he was an advisor to Cyrus the Great. It was Tabash who was the merchant. So Pasha was was an advisor for Cyrus the Great. And he started channeling through Yasmin in the mid-80s while she was a housewife and teaching people how to do meditation. In uh, Reggiora, and she just claims that it's kind of like you know the whole this whole channeling thing for her is very much like you know you're walking backwards off a cliff. She kind of you know dissociates; her consciousness goes elsewhere, and Pasha comes through and starts talking. There are videos of this. She'll be speaking normally, and when she goes into the channeling, she sort of does a little prayer or a little bit of a meditation mantra, and then she starts talking in this really put upon generic fake Middle Eastern accent with her eyes closed. So she's not quite like uh she's not as ballsy as Blair Styra, who will walk around with his eyes open and get a bit more animated. But um from what I've been reading about styra's early channeling, he would actually also keep his eyes closed and do that sort of put upon accent. Early days, it sounded pretty tame. You know, people would apparently go and go to her place. And watch this. Watch her do these sort of channeling. I'm not sure how popular she was. I was. I'm not sure how much money she made, or if she ever sort of had a performance. <laughs> Nothing in terms of the archives from Papers Plus indicate that there was that sort of profile for Yasmin Clark at that time. We start seeing more and more mentions of Yasmin and this Pasha channeling thing online in the internet archives. Probably around oh, the, you know mid 2010s. You know, we started having Internet Archive up there, but apparently she was in operation with the Pasha Center since about 1994 to 1996. So what happened is that they started trying to formalize, you know, put together a center where people could come and get therapy from either Yasmin one-on-one, Yasmin or Pasha, or just Pasha. So she would completely channel the spirit and have sessions with one-on-one sessions with people. But... They expanded the business to include, um, to start teaching people to be trainers in what they call Pasha therapy, which from what I gather is sort of really deep emotional work, but the people teaching it are not trained in psychology. They, as I said, they aren't trained counselors of, of, of themselves. It's Yasmeen and her husband are the main teachers and trainers of this therapy. And, you know, he has maybe a level five certificate in adult education,
1: I, I have a quick question, which is yeah. how would the legislation for counselors cope with the fact that the person isn't giving the counseling? It's a five thousand year old Iranian merchant who's giving the counseling just through a conduit.
2: Would she have to put would she have to like register for two certificates?
1: Yeah, I don't know.
2: <laughs> a certificate for Pasha for Rama and a certificate for herself? That would be interesting.
1: Yeah, I'd I'd love to see the paperwork for that.
2: Yeah. I've talked to a Sort of casually to a couple of people who have sort of been involved intentionally and have done the education. They it's just sort of deep work. You're go you you know you do a lot of work with your trauma, but again it's not quite it's not safe. The, these people these people aren't trained and but what they do do is give people they started their own association for Pasha therapists. They collect fees for an annual practicing certificate. They also yasmin charges for people to go through supervisions because once you become a Pasha therapist and you do this four-year program, put together your business cards, which is what you do in year one. You learn how to put together your business cards so you can call yourself a Pasha trainee therapist and you can work in a free clinic while you're a student. So here you are as a student in your first year, not knowing what you're doing, training people <laughs> in a therapy that's created by someone who is who claims she's talking to a spirit.
3: looks a lot like it's a Feeling your feelings really intensely, kind of thing, which, if you're not a trained psychologist, this could go very wrong. Um, Yeah.
2: Yeah. And there's also a whole, it's like all about, you know, finding your intuition and then using your intuition to tell people how to find their intuition and who their spirit, identifying their spirit guides and claim that, oh, my spirit guide is talking to your spirit guide. It's just, from a skeptical point of view, it's it's just, it's falsehood upon falsehood. But one thing that's always sort of a hard angle to sort of, you know, hard position to hold when I'm writing these articles of that wallets, I can look at these therapists and these channelers. I'm like, yeah, no, there's people who do believe it. And there's people who need to believe it. And there's people who need this thing to be real. And they're, you know, they're losing lots of money. They're spending thousands of dollars. Um, you know, you can do the little short courses. You know, the overnight course like the you know, two or three hours. You spend thirty five bucks. You can do longer weekend retreats for maybe five to six hundred dollars, or you can go overseas and go travel, do these tours to India, which are thousands of dollars. All this money sort of builds up, and if you're there for four years doing this course, you're spending tens
3: of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. And th- these some damage can be done by exploring these things too deeply like i've heard stories about landmark and and things like that where they've really made people you know just go too deep into the emotions and they're not you know they're just not trained for that and no aftercare unearthing things it's snowballing stuff that shouldn't snowball or should be giving people tools so that they can manage what's going on for them not Not necessarily just anything, a bunch of emotions and then hoping for the best. That'll make them better. Um, And look, it may work for some people, but if someone's got some trauma going on, it could do an incredible amount of damage.
2: And what's been interesting looking at sort of the the idea of the Pasha Therapy Association, it's, you know, they don't really keep a register. So there's no accountability as to who is... A paid up member who's maintaining their apc they may have about nine names listed and two of them are you know it's Yasmin clark and her husband jonathan spark and when you look at their bios they're in schools they're people who are, you know it's it's not their main qualification but they're in high schools they're doing counseling work in high schools and Pasha therapy is kind of like one of their sidelines came ugh. across one person at the burnett foundation which is sort of um, what well, that used to be the aids foundation of new zealand well one of their um counselors has a Pasha therapy Qualification, and they have actual you know people who actually have proper psychotherapy. If you're a psychotherapist, you are part of the healthcare. You are covered under the um, Healthcare Practitioners Assurance Act. Well, they have people with proper psychology and count and you know psychotherapy qualifications who are using this qualification who are, who have this um, certification.
1: It's so Bronwyn, th- this reminds me of a few years ago when we went to the Jesus for NZ rally in Parliament. Uh huh. And afterwards, we went to the pub and got chatting and, um, a lovely young woman came over and joined us, who uh, said that she'd overheard our conversation and she was sympathetic, which we thought great. Another skeptic, and eventually it turns out she was a tarot reader. And uh, <laughs> having talked to her about her tarot, she said the great thing about being a tarot reader is that she gets to be like a therapist, but she's not bogged down by you know the fact that she needs a practicing certificate or that there's any regulations. She can just do it without having to worry about all of this. And it really was quite <laughs> telling, you know. That it's like maybe you should have regulation maybe maybe this is something that we need and running around acting like you're a therapist when you don't know if you're damaging people is probably not a good idea.
2: Yeah, cuz i mean, you know, it's one thing for someone to, you know, bring life to deep dark thoughts or to, you know, their deep dark, you know, deep memories or harmful, you know, past. There's an aftercare element that people absolutely overlook, you know. That's not enough to, you know, people will feel lighter when they once they divulge a secret, but Actually, there's a consequence to that divulging.
1: Yeah, And there's also the issue with with fake memories, things that, you know, didn't actually happen. And and I think there's a certain certain different types of therapies that tend to promote that. The idea that we might not remember that you were abused by your parents as a child. But honestly, we think it happened. There are some telltale signs and you can pull these truths in inverted commas out of someone that just it's not true. Um, And it's horrible when that happens. It's really dangerous. And,
2: and, and you know, that's kind of, you know, one of the things that we cut when, when I came across when I was doing the work on Blair Styra and his association with Dolores Cannon. Well, she was sort of the developer of, um, what was it, quantum QHT, a quantum therapy, which is a past life regression therapy. <laughs> so it's definitely, definitely within this whole, this whole market. So, yeah, you know, you have this association of therapists, which is based on a modality that's completely imaginary. Um, with no accountability as to who is a, I guess, up-to-date practitioner, and once you actually graduate and become a Pasha therapist, to get your APC, you have to do supervision once a month, and you can get a super- supervision from another Pasha therapist. But you know, Yasmin does charge. She was 140 bucks an hour or something, or 140 bucks for a supervision session. There, it's, it's not quite clear what the ethics committee is like, you know, how you go through the complaints process, you know, you can make a complaint, but it's just not clear as to, you know, how many complaints have been made, no transparency (laughs) about, you know, how they deal with problematic practitioners. So that's, you know, that's what I wrote about in this recent newsletter. What I'm going to be writing about in the next newsletter is looking a bit more into the business practices, because Pasha therapy is not the only thing this couple does. No, they are co-owners with Franco Hecke of uh, NZ Spirit in the South Island. So uh, NZ Spirit is one of the big, one of these big, big festivals, which you know, great music from what I can tell, but also a lot of what we would call woo, or some very questionable stallholders. Um really big connection to you know, sort of that sacred, you know, some very questionable people in the sacred sexuality space, anti-vax, you name it. They also owned a couple of restaurants in Christchurch. Yeah. As you do, as they do. Um, in this case, they owned uh, Hello Sunday, which I've eaten at. Um, and I ate there. Oh, I think they owned that. I think they had ownership of that till about 2019, 2020. But when I ate there, which was about, I feel like that was like twenty seventeen, uh, twenty eighteen when I was last there. Um, you know, you know, the restaurant's great, but all around the restaurant, you could see like you you see the businesses for the Passion Center, and it did look quite, you know. The chakra the chakras, you know, the statues of Buddha, all that stuff. It had it had the decor of a
0: mm.
2: new age facility.
0: Nice. Mm.
2: So I think um I think they're out of they are out of the restaurant business now. Um they do have a personal tour business that goes to India quite often. What the future pasha of, of is going to be in New Zealand is a little bit unclear because both uh Yasmeen and Jonathan have relocated to India. Oh, mm. So um, there's, you know, I think they've uh, moved out of their little sort of, um, air, you know, their home out, in, out in the outskirts of Christchurch, and yeah, I, th- I, I'm not entirely sure if it's a permanent move. I'm going to try to tease that out. And what should we watch are-
0: the space?
2: Shut up, Craig. Shut up. <laughs> but yes, watch <laughs> this space, because I always update my stories.
1: <laughs> I didn't even notice she overuses this phrase. Oh, but I love it.
2: It's my, it's my tag. It's my tagline. It's my catchphrase. <laughs> But yeah, watch the space, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna make you edit that every time. But yeah, so there you there's go. some there's some interesting developments that are coming in for that for that couple, and you know who who is going to be holding up the mantle of Pasha in Christchurch, or does it start fading away once you lose your gurus?
1: Cool. Looking forward to the article in a couple of weeks. See what else you've managed to dig up.
0: Oh, I hope to dig up more. Very good. So I guess we should find out what's happening around the country.
2: Yes. Yes. Well, depending on when this edited podcast comes out, we will be having the regular bi weekly Skeptics in the pub in Wellington at the Intercontinental Hotel on Two Gray Street, inside the hotel at the lobby lounge, and that will begin at six PM.
1: On what date?
2: On f- well, this Friday, which will be the twenty twenty third. And
1: and given given how the event from two weeks ago kicked off if we yeah. can just keep it down a bit we were the rowdiest group in the pub we had another table ask us to keep it down mm-hmm. and we had one member threatened to walk out and another member actually walk out so uh yeah like skeptics are supposed to be boring but we were we were the life of the party that night so you know let, let's keep it a little bit more toned down next time please yeah. guys
2: yeah let's let's mm. we, we like our venue we want to keep it <laughs> I, I don't know if our um our member who's uh, hanging around in Europe gallivanting around Europe is going to appreciate it if meet start meeting somewhere else.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, Alexander. We've had on the podcast before. He likes the things he's used to. He doesn't like change. There are a few of us like that.
2: And uh, what's next uh, for the activism projects?
1: Oh, more plagiarism. We're getting there. I'm starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel, but this is still late nights for me, like three or four in the morning every night. I'm up until working on this. It's... It's huge. We're we're digging up a lot of stuff. We're building a website that documents it properly. But next Thursday, I imagine we'll be doing more work on this, Um, just trying to grab as many examples as we can. Uh, Thanks to the feedback we've had from people who've offered to help, we now have two different plagiarism tools that um, Friends of the Podcast and Newsletter are uh, using in order to put text through and check them for us. So we're getting some really good feedback from there that's helping us to find new sources yeah so it's it's still that project so if you are interested in helping out or even just gawking and seeing what we're doing come to the fork and brewer next thursday i'm not even trying to work out the date but thursday next week um from six six thirty ish at the fork and brewer and we'd love to see you there
3: it's a real nifty interface you had going there i could even use it so i'm really excited about this project that I happened to pick something, you know, I went, these two things are the same. It's, it's, they're the same. Mm. Um, it's pretty clever. um,
1: um, Yeah. So. (laughs) <laughs> Basically, the interface we built, you you pick one of this person's books, and then it gives you a drop-down listing all the sources that we think have been copied from, and you choose a source, and then it brings up a set of blocks of text on the left and right, and it highlights where they're identical. And when you hover over it on one side, it'll light up the matching text on the other side, and it just gives you a really good idea as you scroll down the pages just how much text is matching. And it's, I think... Yeah. When you first look at it, it's like, no, it can't be this much. Surely, surely not this much text has just been lifted. It's it's quite surprising. And I, I'm really looking forward to it being public, not looking forward to the potential for legal backlash. So we will be talking to a lawyer before we uh, go live with this. Um, there's certainly risk involved. So please, if you're not an active member, pay for your membership and uh, and help us <laughs> afford our legal fees when we get sued for defamation. Uh- <laughs> Do do you think that with the website, there's actually
0: a risk that this person is going to say, oh, you've copied my text and you're shoving it on the website?
1: Yes, absolutely. So we we have options. Um, basically, there's a there's a switch I can flick with four different levels of obfuscation, where we just replace all the words with the letter X repeatedly. So right. uh, if it like there is enough text on this site that there's definitely a risk that you know this goes beyond fair use and like copying half a chapter at a time. Not the person that we're we're detailing. So the person we're looking at. Like it's not their text. It doesn't belong to them. It's not their copyright because they took it from someone else. But it's the original sources. It's their copyright that we would be breaching. So, yes, we're Mm. not worried about this person's copyright because they appear to have just lifted it all. Um, Mm. But, yeah, I mean, there is, you know, there is still a copyright issue. So we'll definitely be talking to a lawyer about that and making sure that we are doing the right thing while also exposing this for what it is, which is pretty despicable. Yeah.
0: Just as an aside it's interesting you mentioned fair use because as I understand it there is no actual provision for fair use in the New Zealand copyright law.
1: <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> we, we might have a very weird website where all it is is the letter x from beginning to end. But anyway, yes,
0: interesting. Uh so I guess you haven't heard anything more from the Dunedin Knights.
2: No, it looks like they're still on hiatus, but if that changes, you will be the first to know, or you'll be like maybe the fifth or 27th person to know.
0: Uh, Unlikely to be the first to know. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, in Auckland, we will be having another Skeptics in the Pub on the first Tuesday of the month. So that'll be the 5th of March at the Dice and Fork. We were going to try a new place, but we're actually going to leave that until April, because Robin is away. For the March date, so he wants to be around when the, the new venue is tried.
1: Oh, what is the new venue? Can you give us a sneak preview? Uh,
0: I only know the name of it. I don't even know where it is, except it'll oh. be somewhere in Auckland. Uh, but it's
1: it's called Brew. Brew. Um, okay. Hmm. So oh, well, hopefully word, it works out as a venue.
0: Yeah, it's actually right in the middle of the CBD. It's on Key Street. So yeah, a bit closer, a little bit closer into into town than our existing venue awesome hmm anyway we'll we'll report back on how that goes
1: but the next one is still the Dyson fork so don't head to brew yet
0: right no no or you can head to brew if you like but just not on the night that (laughs) you won't be there skeptics in the pub (laughs) all right you have been listening to the year now podcast if you'd like to give us some feedback you can send us an email to podcast at skeptics.nz and we will see you all next time. Thank you, Tr- Katrina, for, for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you, Mark and Broman, for joining me. Anytime. You just have to ask. Very good. <laughs> see you all next time.
2: Cookie day. Cookie
3: day.
0: Bye.